Hello. 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 Welcome back to the Waffle <laughs> Press Movie Podcast Retrospective. I'm your host, Diego Crespo. With me is Matt Garingo. Yeah. Do you want to talk about why we're here, Matt? Because we're starting a very different retrospective today. Oh, yeah. Um, w- welcome to the start of the... Uh, I don't think we gave it a title. <laughs> I don't know if we have an official no, title yet. We could figure it out right now, and I'll just cut it out. Or I'll leave it up for patrons. I don't know. Okay, um, the official title is... Happy Ambling. Um, in which we will be discussing the works of both... Adam Sandler and Steven Spielberg. We're going to do Spielberg's entire filmography, and we're going to do pretty much every film Adam Sandler stars in. Um, And we are doing this because uh, I sent this suggestion to Diego as a joke, and he said it sounds like a good idea. Yep. (laughs) And here we are. I will say, that's actually a lie. I'm putting too much blame on Diego. I really wanted to do this. But I kind of threw it out there as a joke, and Diego just, he took the bait. You know what? I think this is going to be our best retrospective yet, because the filmography of the filmmaker and Adam Sandler are so radically different from one another. Like this, this is gonna be the, the, this is gonna be the longest one for sure. We're basically making like a season of television. So, um, thank you to everyone who who's been listening to other retrospectives. Uh, hopefully, thankful to any new listeners that are stopping by to check us out. And uh, I really, really appreciate mm-hmm. everyone. I, I guess support us on the Patreon because we're gonna need it this time. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Um. Enjoy these. What I believe will be seventy-two episodes <laughs> of Spielberg and Sandler madness. And I will say, ten minutes into the first film uh, we're going to be discussing tonight, I was already regretting this. Not to give it away, but this might be the worst film we've ever watched, like, on the <laughs> retrospective. And we watched Halloween 6 and Jaws the Revenge. Yes, and what's shocking is, it's almost certainly going to get worse. <laughs> We've already hit rock bottom, and there's nowhere to go but down. So, so that's what we're doing on this episode. This is kind of just like a little introduction thing for for everyone. Um, um, we're combining uh, the first two things we've said to watch, which is Adam Sandler's Going Overboard, um, his f- feature film debut, and uh, Steven Spielberg's uh, Columbo. Murder by the Book, which was the pilot episode for the TV series Columbo that Steven Spielberg directed. And from now on, every episode will be an individual film. Uh, Some, to be fair, will also be compilations of certain Adam Sandler films. Like, for example, the the Hotel Transylvania films will be a trilogy. I, I have a feeling that uh, we will not be able to find two episodes worth of things to talk about both Grown Ups films. I can't imagine why you'd think that. I, I just, I feel like uh, that will not work you know out. It would be amazing if those movies were like somehow like postmodern masterpieces that were just ahead of their time and were like, hey, everyone wait. <laughs> Let's go back. Um, there's, an ex- there's an exact zero chance that that'll happen. There's, there's no way. I keep an open mind. You're not looking forward to revisiting Eight Crazy Nights? 
Oh God! Um, I actually did revisit Eight Crazy Nights this past oh. Christmas. <laughs> Happy Hanukkah! Um, wow, I think that might have been the thing that inspired this, honestly. Because I was like, I suddenly went like, "We have, I have to find a way to discuss Adam Sandler's filmography," because <laughs> I feel like there's a lot to discuss. I think the universe is about to prove me wrong, <laughs> but um, thought I'd give it a shot. Yeah, uh, truthfully, I'm not sure how much there is to talk about with going overboard. Um, but th- there are there are some things, uh, like you said, Adam Sandler's first movie, 1989. Hold up, I just realized something. Is this the first film you and I have discussed together, directed by a woman? Oh, this makes it so much worse <laughs> because we're starting off on like the worst possible film. Because you know, women filmmakers get so few chances in that industry, anyways. I know, and it's like this is the one we we open with. That's apologies to like the planet and all art forms. And unfortunately, uh, the woman who directed this does not even have a Wikipedia page. No, but but I am happy to say. She has done. She has written a bunch of episodes for Milo Murphy's Law. She's, she's a staff writer on Milo's Murphy, Milo Murphy's Law. Yeah, um, which is a good show. So, Valerie Brayman, who also who also wrote the film, one of the writers. You know, not not always. Um, movies are hard to make. Yes, they are. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine this one was very difficult to make. Uh, it's about a character named Shecky Moskowitz, who <laughs> is a struggling comedian, played by Adam Sandler, and he just wants he wants to get his big break. He's not a struggling comedian. Yeah, he's just a waiter who wants to be a comedian, um, played by, of course, Adam Sandler. Who I, I, I guess we should say this was made before Adam Sandler even went on SNL. I believe he was just kind of like a stand-up at the time. Yeah, so, it, I mean, it, I imagine it being, like, kind of a very personal experience for him, you know? Yeah, well, I, apparently uh, he doesn't talk about this film too much. I can't imagine why. Which, so this is the film of his that he feels personal shame about. Oh, just this one, huh? I guess, <laughs> hey, he he seems cool enough with everything else he's done. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he, uh, he was also one of the writers of the film. Um... Along with a uh, Scott LaRose, who played, uh, was it Dickie Diamond? Is that yep, the character? Dickie Diamond, he the played, comedian. He played Dickie Diamond. This person also didn't go on to do much. He did, He went on to do something called the Blair Bitch Project. Oh, wow, uh, that's creative. Yeah. Woo. Um, remember when everyone was doing those parodies? Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then there was, and then the, the fourth and final writer is uh, Adam Rifkin. Some of you may know, he directed a movie I really like called Look. He directed a movie called Director's Cut, which I worked on. I I worked for a couple days on Director's Cut. Um, Detroit Rock City, which is kind of a cult classic. And he also wrote the screenplays for Small Soldiers and Mouse Hunt. That's what was it like insane to me going into this. When I saw the credits and then... Not only did I see people's names, like, who were credited that were like, what the... Like, Adam Rifkin, that's crazy. Yeah. And then I start seeing people pop up in the film. Mm. And the, the hits just keep coming. 
we should say all the writers all play roles in the film. Um, Scott LaRose plays Dickie Diamond, as I said. Uh, Valerie Brayman played Bambi, who I believe only has one scene. And Adam Rifkin played two roles. He's very briefly on screen as a beauty pageant contestant, and the joke is, haha, it's a man. Um, there's two jokes like that in this film, if you want to know how creative it is. And Just he, a, an unfortunate recurring element in oh yeah, it's the Adam be- Sandler type movies too. It's a begin- There's a lot of elements that start with this film that will be recurring. <laughs> and he also plays uh, the the musician Croker, lead singer of the Yellow Teeth, which is like the only time where it kind of gets. I laughed four times during this movie. Oh hey, that's something. That's um, better than me. During this 97 minute film, I laughed four times. There was a lot of stuff in it where I was like, that could be funny, but it was not executed well in any way. This whole movie, it's one of those ones where not only do I wish it was good because it's like, again, it's so hard for women filmmakers to even get like a foot in the industry, you know, and like to to go somewhere. Um, It's very unfortunate that this one didn't work out, this movie. But uh, I was also just thinking like, Man, this is a movie that's really plotless. Takes place out in the open ocean. I love movies that takes place in or like by the ocean. Mm-hmm. You know, and like this, this if someone remade this like from the ground up, you know, like the basic bones of the outline of the story, I think I think someone could do it. No one will touch this ever again, of course. There is but, um, there's like the n- nugget of an idea here. Yeah, and not one honestly. Like, yeah, this could have been made better, but like, yeah. But I, I don't think there's enough here that it's like, I don't think this needs to be revisited. The film was made for only $200,000, which is, that, that was kind of a funny little moment um, when Adam Sandler's like, oh, we're, n- we're not a low-budget film, we're a no-budget film. So what that means is, and then he shows like the, the earthquake techniques that you see like on the old Star Trek, like original series episodes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, that's, that's kind of cute, you know? And then there's a moment later that made me remember, like, oh, yeah, they're a no-budget film. And I thought it was genuinely really funny. Mm. Not, like, laugh-out-loud funny, but I was like, that's clever, like, filmmaking stuff. Where they clearly didn't have a lot of time for, like, wardrobe and stuff like that. So after Adam Sandler's character wakes up, like, in bed, his buddy comes into the room. He's like, oh, you slept in the uniform? And he's like, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, I was like, oh, that's funny. Yeah, we'll see. The- and that was, like, it. The four times I laughed, they were very much like, "Huh," like I didn't have any sustained laughter. But yeah, um, they they basically straight up say exactly, they say the truth in the very beginning of this film, which is that Adam Sandler talks directly to the camera and basically like, "Yeah, we filmed this on a cruise ship because there's beauty queens on it," which is basically what happened. <laughs> Uh, there was so, there's so little out there about this film, so a lot of what I looked up... So I wanted to find something. I wanted to know where this came from, and the only thing I could go to was the IMDB trivia page. <laughs> so take everything I say with a grain of salt. But uh, it was shot entirely on a cruise ship um, fr- going from New Orleans to Cancun for the Miss Universe pageant. That makes sense. It, it was written in three days. Shot in six days on the cruise ship with two pickup days. And then the budget was between $200,000 and $800,000, as you said. 
Um, it was shot and released as the unsinkable Shecky Mouskovitz. And then it was re-released in the mid-90s as Going Overboard. And then the, the, uh, the only other piece of trivia I saw was that I guess, uh, this is according to IMDb Trivia, I don't know how they know this or why, but it says here, the camera crew forgot to bring a box of lenses on the ship. So the DP was forced to use, quote-unquote, the wrong lenses. Don't know how true that is, but... And it gets to... Honestly, this feels like a movie, like, I would have made when I was 13. Like, if I was on a cruise ship and I was like, hey, let's just, I got a camera, let's shoot something. Like, but that's that's really all I'm willing to give this movie. It's very much a movie uh, that's... And then this happens... And then this happens. Yeah. And then this happens. And then it just kind of ends. And you're like, oh, that's that's it. So when I heard that it's like, oh, they wrote it in three days, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it seems like uh, this is the type of film where it's like, you t- like the plot is just a thing to hang like funny scenes on, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's just or supposed to be. Yeah, but there is so little funny in this movie i mean there are there's so little scenes where it's like again like i occasionally i would be like yeah that could be funny but instead it's just like long scenes of people talking and being weird on and on yeah um like again like i wrote down like i said you know uh croaker lead singer of the yellow teeth like that's kind of funny but it's funny to, like, say it's not actually funny to watch in the movie. And that's what I was thinking about a lot, too. Like, did they... Was this funny on the page? Or was it just like, we need to make this? I think it was one of those things, because, I mean, again, we have a lot of people playing... The people who wrote it played a lot of the roles. So I feel like they just went like, well, I'll play this character, you play that character, you play that character. And then we'll just try to get a movie out of it. Um, this, this is actually really weird. You know Red Letter Media, of course. They made a movie, like, in the early 2000s called Gorilla Interrupted that you can get on DVD, and it's, li- it's, it's fucking terrible. And, of course, I own a DVD copy of it. And it was literally like they just got, like, four of them just got together. They all had their own characters and props and, like, stuff, and they just kind of threw a movie together. They had a basic script, but it was mostly just kind of put these four elements together and make a movie out of it. And that movie works significantly more. Aww. And they're both bad movies, I'll stress that. But one is like, I don't know, there is a sort of like admirable quality. It's just like, you know, it's just people making a movie. Like, they just, they got on a cruise ship, they just tried to make a movie, it didn't work. But yeah, it's so little of this works. I want to, I guess, stress now that, like, I didn't hate this, but it was very unpleasant to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does make me admire what Kevin Smith is capable of on his best days more. Yeah. I love Kevin Smith as a human being. I think he's a great, like, guy, to, like, nerd guy, you know, like, to, like, listen to. And I, I don't want to, like, shoot myself from his opinions or anything like that. Mm-hmm. He just seems like a nice dude, you know. But there are some movies he's made where I'm just like, this is... I can't sit through this. It's it's really bad. But other stuff like the first clerks, I really I still like Dogma. You know, like I'm like, oh okay, there there's like merit, there's like talent involved in that in some capacity. 
Yeah, I would say even with, with Kevin Smith and even with the filmmakers here, as critical as I'm going to be, I don't really put it on anyone. Like, I'm not, like, angry at any of them. You know? Like, they tried to make a movie. It just, it's, yeah, it's hard to make a movie. But this feels, it does feel like something like, this feels like a YouTube generation movie. And, like, I feel like some YouTubers could make a better movie than this. And I would say there's a filmmaker, Jason Steele, FilmCow. Dot com. He made the Charlie the Unicorn animated series. Oh, okay. Uh, he's made a few movies. He made one called Nick the Feature Film, which they literally made up as they were filming over like three days. <laughs> and uh, he did a movie called uh, Detective Heart of America. <laughs> These are the two I believe are available online, which is why I'm mentioning them. <laughs> and uh, which is Detective Heart of America is literally just like he had yard ornaments and he just filmed them and gave them voices and made a movie out of it okay see i like that little ingenuity stuff yeah Uh, i'm i was a big fan i haven't seen his stuff recently so i don't know how well it holds up but i i will vouch for liking his stuff for a long time tom ska he does more skit stuff but uh i remember his stuff being like genuinely inventive for youtube there's a lot of people that like honestly I i feel like most of the people i admired back in the day like just don't exist anymore like, they don't make things as much. Yeah. Um, the other guy I would say, uh, Robert Benfer. I'm a big fan of his. Like, I consider him a big inspiration. Honestly, I think I have a goal in life to get famous, just so I can say people like Jason Steele and Robert Benfer were a huge inspiration. <laughs> and just confuse people with it. <laughs> I'd be like, what? Like, make people go check out these people work and they being like, what? But... <laughs> Yeah, and I, honestly, I get, like, I get the vibe I get from, like, I'm talking early YouTube, where it was just, like, you know, I've got a camera and a car and, like, a bouncy house. Let's <laughs> let's somehow make that into a movie. Yeah. Like, that was, like, early YouTube, and I, I get that vibe here. Um, a little more, because, like, they clearly, like, there's a lot of, like... I was thinking there's a scene in a bar in it where it's very clear they, like, probably had to film that at night while everyone was sleeping. Yeah, and, yeah. Like, there's, like, all the windows are shut in the background, and, um, but, you know, that's, that's low-budget filmmaking. It's just weird. I think this movie really wasn't meant to be seen by a lot of people. It's just that, because, again, Adam Sandler got big. And then now it's like you can watch it on Amazon Prime if you want to. Oh really? I saw it on Tubi. It's free on Tubi. It's free on both. Oh yay! Um, yeah, because yeah, I was like, because I had a moment where I I went to the uh, I went to a used DVD store to get some Adam Sandler films for this fucking stupid project, <laughs> like ones that I knew I'd be okay owning. And uh, I went looking for this one because I can get them for like two dollars at this place. And I couldn't find it. I was like, fuck, I'm going to have to rent this stupid fucking movie. <laughs> but then I saw that it was on Amazon Prime. So I was like, all right. Oh, yeah. I wanted to tell you. Um, this is a no-budget um, flick, not a low-budget flick. No budget. Um, just like this would be an earthquake right here. See, that didn't cost us anything right there. <clears throat> so we got Adam Sandler. Burt Young. Burt Young, who opens the film. Yeah, actually. I, I, I actually want to talk about the opening of this movie for a second. Okay, then here, we'll just cut that and go. you talk about the opening. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Burt Young is in the opening um, as a dictator. General Norega, I think is his name. 
which is the Noriega. 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 Be pronounced. Who I believe was the real life dictator of Panama at the time. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, and his scenes, honestly, it was weird. I thought, watching it, I'm like, did they just shoot these additional scenes with Burt Young to, like, be like, hey, Burt Young's in this movie to, like, sell it? Because it felt so divorced from everything else. But he opens the movie, and he's he's a dictator sitting in his mansion, I guess. He's going through videotapes, and he finds a copy of the unsinkable Shecky Mouskowitz, which, again, was the original title of the film. And so he puts it in, and then the movie starts, except it's called Going Overboard. <laughs> Which, like, right off the bat, it's like, oh, no. And it's animated opening credits, which is also never a good sign. I'm not saying it never works. I'm saying in a low-budget movie, mm. it's not. It's usually not a great sign. Um, but then, first of all, I want to say those opening credits, it's just an animated Adam Sandler, like, mugging. So this movie figured out what Adam Sandler was going to be famous for, like, early on. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's basically a prophet. Like, this is... I would I want people to check out the poster for this movie. Because <laughs> it's not representative of anything in the film. <laughs> it's him in, like, swim trunks with, like, floaties on. Clearly, like, photoshopped horribly. Yeah, and then two women, like, that don't look like human beings, like, diving off the back in swimsuits it's just like wow so we get this opening with the dictator and then we get another like bookend which is interviews with the uh, Miss Universe contestants and then we get the first scene in the movie where Adam Sandler talks directly to camera <laughs> and is very aware that he's in a no budget movie so it's it's like it's got like three beginnings it's so fucking weird It's but then it gets even weirder when the dictator is watching the movie and one of the Miss Universe contestants, Miss Australia, insults the dictator. So the dictator's like, hey, go kill Miss Australia. And then two of the two of his henchmen drive a boat into the movie. <laughs> Which there's like almost there's like a nugget of an idea there. <laughs> like in someone else's hands, like that could be something interesting. <laughs> but here it's like, it's like what? And I will say, Adam Rifkin, like, a lot of his work plays with this sort of idea a lot, where there's a lot of, like, awareness of the camera. Like, the camera is almost treated like a fifth character in the movie, you know? Yeah. Like, his movie Look does that, because Look is told entirely from the point of view of uh, security cameras. Um, I rec- Everyone should check out Look. Look's a really underrated movie. Um, director's cut, which I worked on, it it's it very much plays with that, where like the you know a crazy person is giving a commentary to a film he stole. Um, I don't know, it's just it's an interesting repeated thing, and it, it's interesting that it started here. But here it feels more feels more like, hey, this is why our movie looks like shit. <laughs> I guess it makes more sense when you realize the the production was just like that that fast for a turnaround, you know. Also, a lot of this audio is like very clearly ADR'd. Oh, it's so bad. It's very the bad. The ADR is just awful in this. Uh, mm. it, it's telling that the the other thing we're going to talk about today with Columbo is uh, m- the sound holds up much better in that than in going overboard. That's shocking. <laughs> Television tends to not have the best audio. Who else is in this movie? 
Diego. Besides Adam Sandler and Burt Young, Tom Hodges as uh, that's his buddy, right? Bob. Yeah, just Bob. Just Bob. <laughs> Billy Zane as King Neptune. Yeah, which was the only moment in the film where I was like. Again, like, that's something that pops up in later Sandler films where, like, an imaginary character, like, appears but then ends up being real in a way. Like, a way that's, like, it's never, like, fully explained what's going on there. (laughs) But that was one of the few laugh moments where he shows up. I didn't really find that funny. Like, I like the idea, but I didn't laugh. But then Billy Zane goes to leave, and there's, like, a shot of him, like, he tries to go over the railing and then, like, pulls something and just gives up and walks off camera. That made me laugh. Billy Bob Thornton shows the fuck up. Yeah, it's like David the Dave the construction worker. He's like a heckler or something like that. Well, he, there's a part where Shaggy Green like he's like, "Hey, where are you from, sir?" And like he's like, "I'm, I'm a construction worker." Blah, blah, blah. And like he turns into a heckler. Uh, the biggest surprise, though, the one that completely caught me off guard, Peter Berg. Yeah, director, actor Peter Berg, who directed. Hancock, um, Patriot's Day, which is a terrible film. Uh, it, not not a great director, but he's in the great movie Collateral with Tom Cruise and Mark Ruffalo and Jamie Foxx. And if you want comedic work, he is fucking hysterical in the movie The Great White Hype. He is so fucking funny in that movie. And here he's not really given much. No, no, he's not. He plays more like Ginsburg or something. Which I, I, I guess. Yeah. Um, he, he doesn't even sound like what he sounds like now. Like, mm. it's a completely cartoon performance. But it's it's something yeah. out of the movie, you know? I think the only reason I recognize him is because he is playing a somewhat similar character to his character in The Great White Hype. Um, just voice-wise. Which um, I have not seen. You should, everyone, everyone should, that's like that. one of the most underrated comedies ever. We're, we will not be talking about any underrated comedies in this series. <laughs> Actually, we we might. There's one for sure that does not get the credit it deserves. Yeah, that's we might way find some, down the line. We might find some diamonds in the rough. Um, and I'll say I do like some of Adam Sandler's films. But not saying much. I gotta mention Alan Corvert's in this. Um, Covert oh, oh. or whatever. Um, as a bartender, and he will be a frequent collaborator with Adam Sandler. I just didn't expect to see him this early, you know? He's got maybe two scenes. I guess the biggest name in this is Milton Berle. As himself, he appears in, like, kind of a dream sequence. Um, where he gives Shecky some advice. And, uh, he says that, that, uh, there's nothing more important than the power of comedy or something. Power of laughter. Power of laughter. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it doesn't matter. He ends up using that. They try that. to, like, build something with that. <laughs> well, they try to, but they also try to, like... Which, honestly, that's also a frequent Adam Sandler thing where they try to have their cake and eat it, too, where it's like, oh, isn't that silly? The power of laughter? What a stupid message. But then they also still try to have it. Yeah. This one is at least a little more, like, winking about it, where it's like, haha, we know we're making a stupid movie. Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure uh, what else. It's not a great film. No, but if if you want to find clips, I don't know if there's even any on YouTube. I didn't I didn't check. Um, but just know that I want to reiterate: Billy Zane is in this film, mm-hmm. and he plays a, a racist version of Poseidon, or who may or yeah. may not be no, Poseidon. King, which... I believe he's King Neptune. I believe they say King Neptune. 
Neptune. Oh, what the fuck? Okay, well, they, I fucked that up. They Sorry. either say Neptune or he's just credited as Neptune. It doesn't matter. It might as well be. Okay. Um, Neptune, Poseidon, same difference. You know what? I got to mention this here because I'll never be able to mention this again on this podcast. Mm-hmm. But Milton Berle apparently had a huge penis. Why? Now enjoy the flick. I'll see you later. Yeah, I, I was about to mention, you know, his segment in the film is actually pretty good. It's pretty solid. Yeah, it, it is. Um, it feels like, honestly, it, I don't know, this movie's so weird. Because, like, it ties in so well to the movie that, like, it had to have been part of the production. Like, they couldn't have just made it up later. But, like, that whole scene is shot completely different than the rest of the movie. And Adam Sandler looks... Yeah. Adam Sandler looks like he looks in Billy Madison in that scene. Like, he doesn't look like his character in this movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of that where there's a couple scenes that feel completely divorced. And I don't know, like, if they were shot, like, significantly later and this movie was really changed in editing. Or if this was all, like, if they shot it and then, like, they slowly pieced these other scenes together when they could. I have no idea. I want to say I did. I did find it kind of funny that uh, even at the at the end of the film, Adam Sandler gets set up with King Neptune's daughter, um, Slimy. It's just such a weird thing to throw in at the end. You know, maybe if the movie had like gone weirder like that, I'd like it a lot more. I, I should also mention this movie does seem to. Have, it, it's directed by a woman, but this movie seems to have a really weird view of women. It falls in line with, like, the, the, the trending misogyny of a lot of the Adam Sandler films. Yeah. And a lot of the racism, because the the dictator's henchmen are, like, they're all brown-faced up. Uh, they're given, like, really bad accents. And they're all buffoons, and they're, like, their sound effects to make them look smellier with, like, flies sounds and stuff like that. And I hated that. that that's, like, irredeemable. Unfortunately, white people didn't realize brownface was a problem until about two years ago. So we're going to have to ride out a lot of that in these movies. Well, that's that's over, going overboard. It's going overboard. We went overboard, I guess. Yeah, we went a little long on just one movie. So. Yeah, well, honestly, I do feel like there was a lot to talk about, and then I just <laughs> gave up, so... You know what? That's what I'll say. The movie doesn't give up. It it, it chugs along. They tried. They, its they did extremely long runtime of ninety seven minutes. They tried to make a movie. It didn't work. Everyone involved somehow has gone on to do better things. Well, not not everyone. Yeah, some of the people. It's her only credit. Yeah. Uh, the woman who played Slimy at the end has no other credits. Aww. So, hope you're doing okay out there, Slimy. I mean that genuinely. I kind of knew it right from the start. There's nothing definite. It's a lot of little things. Little things. Wasn't that great? A fun trip down memory lane to a time when Adam Sandler wishes he could forget. Yeah. I guess we'll move on to the next movie now for, uh... For this thing, I was going to split up this episode, but now let's just let's just double feature back to back. Fuck it, we're going to go straight into the Steven Spielberg segment of this retrospective with Columbo, a show that I know very little about outside of my friends telling me it's one of the greatest shows ever made. Oh, Columbo is the fucking best. I can't. I don't even know where to start with how good Columbo is. 
Um, but I guess I want to ask you. So this is your own. This is your introduction to Columbo. Um, what did you think? You had texted me that it's not great. Mm-hmm. The pilot episode of Columbo. Not to give away your thoughts immediately. Uh, I'm here to tell you that you're wrong. Okay. That I thought this was a great pilot episode that goes on a little too long. Okay. Uh, I fell in love with this pilot with the show. I want to see the rest of Columbo now. Okay. That's cool. I just think to me, I wouldn't even say that it's not great. It's just that one, when I started watching Columbo, I did not start with this. Um, Netflix did a weird thing a few years ago where they had Columbo on, but only like select episodes. That's so fucking weird. It was weird. And then, so I only watched what they had and, uh, Coming back to it, it was like, I, this is probably a good introduction to Columbo, but like knowing what he is, I, like this wouldn't make my top ten Columbo episodes. But it's it's very it's a very solid Columbo episode. Directed by Steven Spielberg, the first pilot episode of Columbo is called Murder by the Book, mm-hmm. which is a great kind of like Agatha Christie style title. Yeah. The, the they seem to be dunking on Agatha Christie a little bit in this. Yeah, I kind of got that vibe, too. Mm-hmm. This do, do all the episodes open with, like, the mystery plot and, like, the side characters? Yes. They, okay, and then Columbo's they, woven into the narrative. Yeah, Columbo shows, usually shows up, like, 20 or 30 minutes in. And then, it's fucking awesome. It's, yeah, oh, it's the best. And I was so confused the first time I watched a Columbo. <laughs> I was like, well, I know who did it. How is this going to be interesting? Oh, how little did I know. <laughs> well, that was my thing too. I was like, "Well, all right, I guess it's not like a, a rug pulling, twisty turny, topsy turvy mystery thriller." And it, it's not. It's just like, oh, it's a, it's still a mystery, but it's not a mystery for the audience. Yeah, it's just like piecing it together, which is way more interesting. How's he going to catch the guy? That's all it is. Yeah, this is great. And um, I love loved Peter Falk in this. Oh yeah. Um, I hope this starts you down a path of watching more Columbo. Just fucking change the retrospective. It's actually just Columbo. <laughs> you know what? I totally would. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know. We might have to do that at some point. Maybe. I have the whole, I have the complete series on my shelf right behind me. Is the entire series on YouTube? Because th- this is legal. Also, yeah, yeah. Just so everyone. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's like. It's there. The pilot episode's there on YouTube there's, with an official Columbo channel. There's a few episodes up on the official Columbo channel right now. And they, they change every now and then one goes down. They just put up uh, the fucking episode with uh, John Cassavetes. Holy uh, shit. It might, that might be the best Columbo episode. Should I, I could just jump to it then too, huh? Because yeah, they're all standalone. It's, it's right there. They just put it up like today. Um... And I love that one. But yeah, and they might not be up for too much longer, though, because there was some sort of lawsuit recently this year. Um, and the rights, I think, reverted back to the estate of the original creators. No. And, hey, well, no, if they get... I'm, I, I'm glad if the writers get some credit as opposed to the studio. Oh, I don't okay, know. Okay, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. I don't know what's going on with the channel. I don't know. So, like, there's a chance it could go down. Mm. But um, for now, there's a couple episodes up. And if not, I mean, I honestly, I got the complete series is totally worth it. And I got, I got it real cheap when I bought it. So, and it's, if you have like me TV or like one of those local stations, they seem to air like an episode a week. 
<laughs> and they usually play the hits too. They don't play like the shitty ones. Are there some not great Columbo episodes? Yeah, there's a couple. I think it's like season four, season five, like is like nothing but duds. Like Aww. there's there's one or two good ones, but like there's there's a couple seasons where I'm like I like if I do a marathon, I'm like dreading those ones. <laughs> yeah, like every now and then there's 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 always like one a season that like I really don't like. Um, but it's honestly just a solid enough show that even when it's bad, it's still fun. But I guess I'll give some Columbo history right now, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, do it. It's not going to be easy. Um, the character of Columbo was created by uh, Richard Levinson and William Link. He first appeared um, in 1960 on the, tel- on the TV series of the Chevy Mystery Show in an episode called Enough Rope, which was based on a short story the two guys had written, but the short story did not feature Columbo. They just kind of got this idea for a detective. And I was like, hey, what if we had this detective character? It was kind of a schlub who, like, you know, asked weird questions. <laughs> um, and he was played by Bert Freed in the episode. Um, didn't make a huge impact, but they were inspired enough to turn that that episode into a stage play called Prescription Murder, um, which toured around the country. And then... That was popular enough that Prescription Murder was picked up by NBC to be a two-hour TV movie. Lee J. Cobb and Bing Crosby were both considered for the role of Columbo. And Lee J. Cobb's interesting because he's basically playing a Columbo-type character in The Exorcist. Lee J. Cobb rules, by the way. I love him. He would have been a cool choice, but uh, Peter Falk apparently like pushed to get the role, and the director of the TV movie, like, convinced the writer because they envisioned an older actor, and Peter Falk was considered, like, too young at the time. And he, he got the part. Um, it was, like, a dream of him that he's like, I really want to play a cop like that. Peter Falk, of course, was born. Um, he has had a, gl- had a glass eye since the age of three. Um, he had cancer of the eye and had to, he lost his eye as a child. So he grew up with a glass eye. He was a fucking merchant marine in World War II. <laughs> Um, Because he couldn't serve in the military because of his glass eye, so they made him a merchant marine, and the merchant marines lost more than, like, any other corps in World War II. Oh. So, uh, hey, uh, but he got lucky. (laughs) I don't know if that's the right thing to joke about. Probably not. Um, Worked his way to stage, um, then, of course, um, transitioned to film, was nominated for Best Supporting Actor twice. Um for Murder, Inc., which he's great in, and Pocketful of Miracles. Somehow, he was not nominated later in his career for A Woman Under the Influence or a Mikey and Nicky, which are two incredible films. Um, and then at some point, he just started getting more work in television, and he started doing Columbo, and that just became his thing. Um, he, would, he did Columbo basically until the end of his life. They had one more Columbo they wanted to do called Columbo's Last Case, um, but no network would pick it up, and then Peter Falk unfortunately passed away. Oh, uh, fucking tragic. Yeah. Although, I gotta say, the last one they did, um, Columbo, I believe it's called Columbo Likes the Nightlife, which is about, like, people, they want to open a dance club, but they murder a guy who's been, like, extorting them or something. It's so weird, because it's the murder... And mystery elements are shot kind of like a like a CSI, like low rent CSI NCIS episode, and then Columbo just kind of like comes stumbling in, 
Like, I, I, like a lot of people are down on the later Columbos because they kind of get a little more graphic and a little more, like, you know, it loses kind of, like, the wholesomeness of a murder show, I should say. <laughs> but I, what I really like about it is that they transition with the times, but Columbo always stays the same. So, like... 80s Columbo feels like the 80s, and 90s Columbo feels like the 90s, and early 2000s feels like the early 2000s, but Columbo is still Columbo in all of it. That's fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. Okay, because that's what I really liked. Like, I really fell in love with the character of Columbo in this, even though he doesn't show up until I timed it, like, 18 minutes into the, his own pilot episode. Yeah. Which is really great, and it's, it's the most unassuming, heroic, like, entrance ever. He's mm-hmm. just a blue-collar dude... Uh, popping around from the corner. Excuse me, ma'am. While she's trying to drink from the water fountain. Oh, you know, the water fountains don't really work. Uh, yada, yada, yada. Just starts small talk, and he's like the nicest dude. He he makes her an omelet when he takes her home. And it's just, he's so lovable. Well, it's the thing of, like, first of all, he is, like, he's, you know, he's basically um, consoling the woman whose husband is missing. Like, trying to help her out. But if you know Columbo, like I do, you also know that he, he he's being nice, but he is fishing for, like, clues. He's waiting to see if she'll slip up on something. And But, of course, because Columbo's Columbo, probably by the end of that conversation, he was like, there's no way she did it. Because that's, that's Columbo. Well, th- yeah, because I, I totally got that eventually. I, I missed that for the his introduction, but when he meets the, the dude who so clearly, obviously killed yes. his partner... <laughs> Like, it's not even subtle. And he even says, like, at the end of the episode, like, oh, yeah, like, I knew it was you pretty much from the start. I was just, I just wasn't sure how you did it and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, like, this guy is, like, mm. he's clearly hiding something. Well, this guy makes one of the all-time Columbo mistakes, which there's no, there's no way to get around Columbo. I'll just say you're always <laughs> going to get caught. But uh, the one thing is, if there is not a, if you do not frame someone else for the crime... Columbo's never going to give up. So he will keep following you until you slip. Because he just he goes like, ah, Hitman must have done it. Contract killing. You know how these things are done, Columbo. And Columbo's like, well, I'm not sure about that. But, <laughs> uh, but I will say, you talk about him showing up late. I believe in the two uh, television movies, he doesn't even show up until like the last half hour of those. Holy like, fuck. It's mostly just the criminals in those, and then he shows up. And also, he's much, uh, he's much like, more vicious in those. Like, there's one part, I believe in the second TV movie, where he's outright screaming at the suspect. Oh my he's god. Like, you did it, you imagine. know you did it. He only, he only broke, like, a few times on, in the actual series. One time was with Leonard Nimoy. Oh my god. Leonard Nimoy played, which is one of my favorites. I love that one. Where uh, the guy is, Leonard Nimoy's like laughing at Columbo. He's like, Columbo, how could you, this it was clearly, you know, outside drug dealers. How could I, a doctor, be involved? And he's like laughing. And Columbo like picks up a lamp and like slams it down. And he's god. like, I know you had something to do with that nurse's murder. <laughs> and then one time there was a guy who was like, he was really getting under Columbo's skin. Like Columbo just hated this guy. Um, you know, I think it was, it might have been Jack LaLanne, the the workout guy, because that was the plot of that, like a workout magnet, like killed his partner or something. <laughs> and like, he was really getting, Columbo was like, he was like, Columbo, how can you keep going? Do you really believe I did this? Like, yes, I believe you did it. And I'm going to get you. And oh, one time, oh, I, I just got to throw this line out there. I don't remember the episode, but it's one of my favorites where um, he catches the guy 
and the guy had an alibi that Columbo, like, of course, flips on his head, and, like, that's what he uses to get the guy, and he goes, like, you know you had the perfect alibi, and it's your perfect alibi that's gonna hang you. Like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the best. I fucking love Columbo. Well, just, like, even the way he was, like, interrogating this guy, like, it gets progressively more, like, not not aggressive, but, um... Ah, oh, what the fucking word I'm looking for, like... Persistent, like... Persistent, he, yeah, like... And he, he, it's he, almost passive aggression. Well, at some point, you know, the suspect realizes what Columbo's game is, like, at some mm-hmm. point. And Columbo knows the suspect does, but he won't say it to, like, just make it annoying. So, <laughs> like, Columbo's like, oh, I'm just, you know, I was just in the area. Like, Columbo does that a lot. <laughs> Yeah, and then, like, in the first episode, this guy's like, you're always in the area. Yeah, you're always in the area, Columbo. <laughs> oh, I love that. But, like, when he finally, like, basically books the guy in, mm-hmm. in the office, it's the funniest fucking thing because the, the, the suspect still thinks he has, like, he still has the upper hand situation. He's, like, looking out the window, mm-hmm. uh, looking out the city, like, oh, yeah, like, it's nothing nothing to worry about. But as Columbo keeps, like, pressing him and revealing that, like, oh, no, he does have him, mm-hmm. the more the conversation goes on, and this is totally like a Spielberg blocking thing. The 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 suspect goes to sit down at the table. Columbo gets closer and closer. He has to sit down. He can't even look at him. And so when he turns away, Columbo is sitting across from him to like just keep pressing him even though he's on the other side of the room. And that was like hilarious. Like, yeah. It's a very serious moment, but it was so funny. He's oh, like, no, no, no I'm, I'm still talking to you. It was great. Now there's a couple – I think Spielberg might have gotten his whole like little oneer in the, on the Spielberg oneer technique from working in television like because there's a lot there's a couple of those in this episode and because there's not a lot of work that you can't really draw a line too many lines to spielberg's later work but there's every now and then there was something where you're like oh yeah Mm -hmm. and but and that's Uh, definitely one of them yeah the other one that like really it's gonna sound weird it reminded me of close encounters Mm -hmm. um i don't know why but when the suspect's in the lake, dropping off the body and making it look like um, uh, the witness had, like, drowned. Like, just got drunk and, mm. got, and drowned. Something about the moonlight reminded me of Close Encounters, and I have no idea why. Mm. That None of that's in Close Encounters. And before that, when he's seducing the witness to kill her. Yeah, yeah. And there's, like, the, they kiss, and there's, like, the soft red underlight, like, beneath their chins, and it gave them, like, this really weird, cool glow. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I really like that. That was like, I could imagine seeing that in more Spielberg stuff. That felt very much like him. Yeah, I guess we should talk about Spielberg now. Oh yeah, the uh, beard, the yeah. man, my favorite film director. Yeah, the man, the myth, the legend, Steven Spielberg. <laughs> um, yeah, it's gonna be hard. This is probably gonna be. It's weird. It's gonna be hard because we got to sit through Adam Sandler films. And it's also going to be hard because we are talking about one of the most influential filmmakers of all time. (laughs) And, like, controversially so. Like, you know, there are people that, like, blame Spielberg for a lot of bad trends in film. um, Mm -hmm. Which I'm sure we'll discuss more as the series goes on. Oh, will Uh, we? But uh, Spielberg uh, rejected from USC because he was not a great high school student. (laughs) Um, I think that the legend goes, and who knows how true this is, but Spielberg has said it enough. That he took a tour of Universal Studios one day and just stayed in the bathroom during the bathroom break and just walked around the lot all day. 
and visited different sets and then eventually uh, ran into an editor and the editor found out what he had done but he was like well clearly you're passionate so I'll write you like like two weeks of passes to come to the lot and so Spielberg showed up for two weeks and at the end of that he was like the guy was like look I can't write you any more passes I'm sorry so Spielberg but then Spielberg showed up again and by that point the guards knew him so they just let him on without checking (laughs) (laughs) and I guess he did that for a while until um, he got an unpaid internship as an assistant editor working on you know just various stuff around the studio uh Eventually, uh, he got some money to make uh, his short film that was, re- I believe, released theatrically, like in front of films, uh, some other films, Amblin, um, which is worth checking out. It's, an, it's a cute little film about like two um, kind of young people hitchhiking to the uh, coast, Amblin along, as you'd uh-huh. say. Yeah. That impressed Universal VP uh, Sid Sheinberg enough that he signed Spielberg to a seven-year contract. <laughs> which made him the youngest director to ever get a contract like that. So he was like, from the start, he was kind of picked as a golden boy. He starts in television, and uh, he works on uh, Night Gallery. Um, I believe it was his first job. He did a segment for Night Gallery where he worked with Joan Crawford. Um, he did a couple other television things before eventually getting the job to direct the pilot for Columbo. He still wasn't getting movie work, which is what he really wanted, and I think he was a little upset about being stuck in television and also he had to deal with very antagonistic crews which were full of older people he, they would kind of look down on him as such a young person coming into direct because this was at that big you know finally the shift that would come with new hollywood he was right at the beginning of that there's a lot to talk about there we, we funnily enough brought it up with star wars um because obviously the george lucas and steven spielberg friendship connection will be brought up many times with this retrospective, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. and if I'm, I'm and if I'm being honest, I still wish Spielberg had done a Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, it's not not too late. Well, he kind of did one. Oh, oh, that's right. Yeah, you know, he did kind of do that one. Yeah, that's right. But I, I actually did not know. I, I was convinced he went to USC. Why did I think that? I think he got an honorary degree later. Okay. Um, but well, that's the all the film, all the guys from that era. Like, a lot of them went to USC, and they all kind of, like, fell into a group. And then Spielberg, for a while, was, like, almost treated like the outsider. Like, I think it was, like, him and Brian De Palma were, like, both considered, like, outsiders for a while. Oh, because they didn't, like, trod the beaten path? Yeah, well, they just, they didn't end up in that group, which was, like, a very close-knit group of people. They all worked on each other's films, you know. You had, you know, Lucas and Scorsese and Coppola all working together. And it's it's just crazy to imagine like being in that group at that time. Like, I I you know I would have wouldn't mind if I was just like the guy who like didn't get to do anything, but like I was just there. That would have just been cool to be there, you know? Yeah, like oh, back in my day, I worked with Scorsese, Spielberg, Lucas. Yeah, you know, I watched that documentary about uh, Dick Miller. That guy, that guy, Dick Miller, um, which is a great documentary. And that's like honestly to me, that's the dream career. <laughs> <laughs> is it just be Dick Miller? Oh, rest in peace. Rest Dick in Miller. peace, Dick Miller. Love you. He was the best. Oh, that's Gremlins and Gremlins too. Oh yeah, which go. which almost were a part of this retrospective. <laughs> yeah, they're this close. Very close. So just I was gonna be like, fuck it, let's do Gremlins. Well, funny all that. Steven Spielberg's now the king of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Basically, could do whatever he wants, or or like so so you would think he still runs into problems here and there with uh, getting some projects off. Well, the yeah, ground. that's it's it's ridiculous that Hollywood. Every year, honestly, 
I don't say this too much, and like I know I don't want to anoint one guy as like king of Hollywood or whatever. But come on, just let him do the shit. Like we got, we're only gonna have so many more years of Spielberg. Yeah. Like, let him do everything. For Christ's sake. Like honestly, just imagine telling Steven Spielberg, "No, we will not make that movie with you." Yeah, we're the Walt Disney Company. We're making we we have six films this year that have made over a billion dollars. Yeah, we don't want to give a hundred million to Spielberg. So fucking stupid. Like, eh. Which will definitely make it, I mean it will break even, but will it be a monster hit? That's the problem, and that's yeah, what if is, it doesn't if it doesn't break a billion, they're not interested anymore. And Spielberg seems like the one guy is going to be like the longest holdout from doing like streaming. You know, like yeah. I think he's like tip, he's put his toe in a little bit where like there's always talk that he'll do that Napoleon series on like he might do that for Netflix because um, he's been trying to get that done forever ever since Kubrick died. Um, yeah. But yeah, it seems like he's gonna be the guy who like when when he finally does streaming, that's when it's over, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, to be fair, he said that that he's not against streaming. He's just like just don't call them movies, which I disagree with with him there. But I, I have also seen a lot of headlines. People are like, oh, Spielberg's a, a hypocrite because he's working with Apple now. And it's like, well, he, it's not what he said. He didn't say not to do it. You know, he just he's being an old grump, but, you know, he's not saying not to work with them. You know what's weird? All right, I got this is going to be a very odd thing to bring up. But Spielberg might have kind of a point. Because um, I was I've, – I've been – I've been trying to get back out into some, the social scene ever since my uh, surgery. And I've been on a lot of, like, you know, dating sites and, like, Match.com and shit. And, like, there's that part where people can list, like, what music they're into and stuff. Yeah. People will list the TV shows they like, but they will list the books, TV shows, music, but no movies. Like, I've just, it's, a, it's a trend I've noticed. And I don't know what that... Really? Yeah, I don't know what that means. But... It's, I don't know. That kind of... That's... I got chills. That's kind of scary. Yeah, I, well, I, I do think we're kind of at the beginning of the end here. Mm. This just might be how things are going. And, like, I... um, Who's that guy? Matt Zoller Sites or whatever his name is? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He wrote a good article. Like, he, he, I think he made the best point right after Endgame came out where he's like, I think this is, the this is like, actually the end. <laughs> like, he's like, movies aren't movies anymore. And I think he, he has the good, best perspective on it where he's like... There's, it's going to be something new. Like, I I can't say if it's good or bad. I just know it's going to be new. And so we, I think we just kind of have to get ready for that shift. What it's going to be, I don't know. But um, it's a little sad. I'm going to be... I don't want the theaters to go away. That's my big concern. Um, I hope... That's something I, I've, I've thought about a lot. Because my... My big revelation on that is that theaters will probably not go away. Like I, you know what? No, that's a lie. I do not think theaters will go away. That's my firm belief. But they will become like more expensive, and they'll be treated like Broadway theaters. You know what yeah. I mean? Which I'm not totally against, honestly. I'm not either. But I do hate that it becomes like this class disparity thing. Yeah. You know? Well, that that'll be the big problem, and that that'll just be the problem if like you kind of have to have like these central hubs of films because the Broadway part of it is the location. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think they'll ever get that expensive, but it will definitely be more expensive. Um, but if you could see, if there was like a theater that's like, you know, like hey, we're gonna show 
like Lawrence of Arabia all year in one theater. Like that'd be kind of that'd be interesting. Like on the screen, yeah. on film, that could be something. Um, whether or not that they'll actually, you know, stoop to showing film. Um, but you know, I think the revival theater will become more of the thing, at least in the near future. Um, that's my hope anyway, because I would, I, I wouldn't mind that. But again, it would be, you know, the class issue, and also you're we're abandoning huge parts of the country that just can't go to that stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, you know what? This is going to be even weirder than anything else we talked about. I imagine the future of film being like Annihilation, where mm. it's going to be a rough, tumultuous experience where people are suffering and dying in horrible, horrible ways. But then by the end, you're like, well, is what comes next good or bad? Because that was like, that might be worth it or it might just be all worse from here. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're, we're going to change, but we don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's really what's going to happen. No, it's not a bad comparison. Yeah, thank you. Um, I love Annihilation. Oh, go yeah, watch Annihilation. Go watch Annihilation. That's... Great movie. Yeah, better um, than going overboard. Oh, significantly. But yeah, you know, I think it'll maybe smooth out in the next couple years. Uh, maybe if, like, I honestly think streaming doesn't have to be bad. It's just likely going to be bad. There, there's good shit there. There's, there's always potential. We, we talked about it with the Marvel stuff, which I promise I will not bring up during this retrospective anymore. This is it. Um, it Amazon's got some great shows, and Amazon's like, you know, the bastion of, like, capitalism. <laughs> really, think about it. We could be living in this great era where all media is at our fingertips. Like, if you want to watch something, you can get it, like, n- without spending that much money. But it's all in the hands of corporation that want to get corporations that want to gouge as much money as possible from every human being on earth, and that's that's really the problem. Honestly, I think that's one thing with Spielberg's. Sometimes he'll make comments like that about Netflix and stuff, and I don't think because you know he is a billionaire. Um, I don't think he can see the bigger picture that it's not that the concept of Netflix is the problem. It's how who's controlling Netflix and who's controlling streaming for the future. That's where the problem's going to be. And, you know, maybe I feel like there's a day not too far off where we could achieve that era where all media is available, or at least most of it. Um, But that's, we're probably about to enter a very uh, quiet decade. I'm just getting out while the getting's good i guess we'll see uh, that that might explain a decision that spielberg made in a recent film of his but we'll definitely talk about that down the line oh yeah that's uh yeah <laughs> we'll talk about that one <laughs> um but i wouldn't have discovered columbo without streaming i mean i basically i looked up i, w- I had gotten this is gonna this is kind of embarrassing to admit but i had gotten really into that sherlock tv show <laughs> Which, now that I look back on that show, I'm like, what did I like about that? Uh, I don't think it's that embarrassing to admit, because that was huge at it one point. It was huge, but now when I look back, I'm like, what was I doing? I, I still like some of those episodes. It's not nearly as smart as it thinks it is, is the yeah, problem. Yeah, I, I think that's the thing, and I can't like divorce that from mm-hmm. it at all. It gave us Benedict Cabbage Patch or whatever. Um but, I'm gonna put the clip of Jake Gyllenhaal talking about him right now. Have you oh seen no. that? 
Oh, no, I have not. I guess I'll have to check that out. Oh, my God. You're in my Cabbage Patch. Cabbage. We don't talk enough about Cabbage Patch dolls or uh, Garbage Pail Kids anymore, and I'm glad that you brought that up. Benedict Cabbage Patch is actually, his great-grandfather started Cabbage Patch dolls, and they were a big thing in the 90s. That's how Benedict got his start in the business, was his uncle, who obviously became really wealthy uh, from all of the-, the, the Cabbage Patch Kids. Uh, uh, profits, um, flew him to London and put him in an apartment, and he started to audition and then he made his career. So the truth of the matter is, without Cabbage Patch Kids, Benedict Cabbage Patch Cabbage Patch wouldn't have a career and you wouldn't have Dr. Stranger. So think about it. Stephen Moffat needs to be one of several writers. He can never be like the one guy. Cause fuck did his what did his Doctor Who disappoint? I mean I don't think I've ever, because I really, you know, that was that thing of, like, he did the fucking, the Angels one and all that oh, shit. Oh, that so good. That episode is so good with the Weeping Angels that yeah. you can show it to someone who doesn't, like, know anything about Doctor Who, and that'll mm. get them into it. That's like, yeah, it's like the perfect introduction episode to the series. Like, it's great. And it also, I do think, like, his first series started out very promising, like, you know, bumps here and there, but I thought the first one he did on his own was all right and then it just fucking nosedived hard and man um but yeah but because of that i kind of was like i want to watch more detective and mystery shows so i looked up a list and was like what are the best detective shows and it was like the wire and columbo <laughs> so i was like i gotta watch those and the wire was not streaming at the time so i columbo was so i started watching it and i was like holy shit this is great you know, it's kind of funny like, looking back at that now. It's like, you know, there's like gradual progression steps for like certain television movies, like series and films and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, you watch like Harry Potter before you go to like Game of Thrones, obviously, right? Like for for our generation. And then I was like, no, I'll start with The Wire. And I caught Columbo in my 20s. Hey, you know, hey, there's no wrong way to do it. No, no, there's not. But it's just, it is different. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, I think, you know... There's pitfalls and stuff to like the other way because I mean I think the only reason I like Dragonheart is because I watched it as a child. I think if you tried to get me to watch it now, I wouldn't like it. Well, Dragonheart has the best musical score to the worst movie. Oh yeah, that's that is wow. That score's so good. But fuck, is that fucking terrible looking CGI dragon just so charismatic? <laughs> I mean, goddamn. They almost did it with Jim Henson's uh, puppet studio. Oh, that would have been so good! And I think they only ended up building the head for, like, that one scene. Um, but, hey. Um, Dragonheart is a movie. Um, to the stars, board. I am the last one! <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a fine movie. Oh, Spielberg would have made a great Dragonheart. Spielberg hasn't done... Has he done any fantasy? Really? He did Hook. Um, and, like, the Indiana Jones films kind of, like, teeter on fantasy. That's the thing. He, his is always about the ordinary coming up against the extraordinary. Yeah, and I guess so that's... it wouldn't be a know, straight fantasy. He hasn't... He's never really done a straight... Any, like, even, like, I guess Minority Report and AI, but...
Yeah, that's like more science fiction-y, I guess. Though. Yeah. So like he could like kind of work that around in his mind. But hang on, the ordinary coming up against the extraordinary is totally fit for Dragonheart. Yeah, I guess. I guess. If they, if you could have moved the setting, you know, make it modern day, find the last dragon. He gave his heart to a evil real estate developer from New York City. <laughs> I, I, I think there's a severe lack of talking dragons in media. Look, I know you're not crazy about the Hobbit movies, but I, I really Jesus like Christ. Smog. No, I know I like Smog too, but like it hurts that it's in like one of the worst movies ever. <laughs> no, it's it is not one of the worst movies ever. It's a dud, but it's not. It's yeah, but the like worst. Yeah, but what it could have been—that's what makes it hurt. Because oh, yeah, obviously, yeah, I, that makes it worse than like you know something that's just like boring, in my opinion. So like going overboard versus eh, that. Honestly, <laughs> going overboard is ninety-seven minutes. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Peter Jackson, but I was so this, uh, you know, that was the first time where like I didn't feel obligated to finish a franchise, you know. Uh-huh. Like I saw the second one in theaters, and I just when the third one came out, I was just like, I can't do it. Like I just couldn't do it, and I still haven't seen that last one. Uh, you, you're good. That was a really funny story, man. What? Yeah, I want. Well, I want to talk about um, Jack Cassidy, who plays the killer in this episode of Columbo. Um, he he he's a frequent Columbo murderer. Like a lot of actors come back multiple times. Oh, really? Yeah, and he's he's huh. always like the biggest asshole. Oh, he's good at uh, it. Yeah, um and he actually plays one one he is a magician who is a former Nazi. So it's Columbo what? versus a Nazi. Yeah. Um he's a magician, he's being blackmailed by a club owner. Like he basically, you know, performs for nothing and he's like, "Well, if if you stop performing, I'm going to turn you into the authorities. So he kills the guy, and then Columbo gets involved. So that's Columbo versus a Nazi. What episode um, is that? So I can watch it Oh, God, I can't re- It's like the great, like, Svengini or something like that. Like, I don't remember the name. I'm sorry. Oh, God, um, that sounds like the best. It's like season three, I think. Okay. Um, just look well, up Jack Cassidy. If I just look up the acting credits, I'll, I'll yeah, find it eventually. Look up Jack Cassidy. He also did one... That um, he honestly he did another one also currently available on YouTube, also involving killing a writing partner, <laughs> as the plot of this episode did with uh, called Publisher Parish, and that one has one of my all-time favorite Columbo moments, where the Jack Cassidy's plan in that one is that he is gonna frame himself for the murder. So he's going to leave a bunch of fake evidence framing himself, but also have the perfect alibi as a way to, like, divert suspicion. So Columbo shows up, and Columbo's like, look, I don't really think you did it, because this evidence isn't making sense, you know? Mm-hmm. And so Columbo starts looking, he's like, but he's like, look, I'm going to have to arrest you if I find a few more pieces of evidence. But then uh, Columbo goes, hey, there's a dent in your car. And Jack Cassidy's like, you're right. And then it's like, hey, we just got a phone call. He was in an accident last night. He couldn't have committed the murder. And Columbo's looking at him as he's as Jack Cassidy is examining the car accident. And you can see it on Columbo's face when he realizes Jack Cassidy is the murderer. 
<laughs> you can see it. You never get that chance because usually he shows up and it's like he read the script. Yeah. Like, like from scene one, he knows who the murderer is, but in that one, you can see the moment when he switches and it's fucking fantastic. Um, but Jack Cassidy, I really liked. I, I like him. He's a good uh, Columbo villain because um, he, he's the, the plot of this is he's going to murder his writing partner because his writing partner's leaving him and they've been writing a series of mystery novels starring a woman named Mrs. Melville. Uh, clearly a reference to a Herman Melville. <laughs> and also, like, the whole episode, every time Columbo's like, well, I was investigating, he's like, Columbo, if you had been, like, Mrs. Melville, like, he's so, like, <laughs> such a douche about it. And Columbo's like, well, I'll have to consider that next time. But, of course, that's why he doesn't realize Columbo's actually been playing him the whole time. Um, it's fantastic. So he, he murders his partner to collect the insurance money. And then uh, he have, he's eventually forced to kill a, uh, a witness, which is something that happens a lot on Columbo. Columbo almost seems to, like, allow witnesses to be murdered. <laughs> <laughs> like, so there's, there's a couple episodes where he's like, I can't convict you of the first murder, but I can definitely convict you of the second one. <laughs> like, that happens a few times. But here Jesus. that doesn't happen. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. There's a dark side to Columbo. <laughs> There really is. There's one episode where he admits that like none of the murders ever bother him. He's like, I actually really like my job. Oh my god. <laughs> but yeah, um, and Columbo eventually gets the guy, of course, because it's Columbo. I should. Everyone should check it out. Um, great start to Columbo and a great start to Spielberg's career. Yeah, yeah. Um, on the YouTube version, I took some screen caps, so I'm just gonna pop some up there. But I, I thought it was. Very impressive for a television pilot. Uh, oh, yay yeah. Spielberg, yay Columbo. I'm gonna. I might just buy the box set. Like I really loved this pilot episode. Oh, it's so good. I, maybe watch a few more. See if you like get the hang of it. Like there's there's like currently like four up on YouTube. Fuck yeah. Um, and they're all very entertaining. Um, but definitely check out the J- John Cassavetes one. Um, because that might be like if if there was a one where I was like where to start, I'd be like start with that one. Um, John Cassavetes. Yeah. Who only and did it because he was friends? Versus Nazis. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. And Cassavetes did it because he's, of course, friends with Peter Falk. <laughs> so, and it's like an extra long episode too, which makes it even cooler. Oh um, shit! But oh, it's great. Um, yeah, um, check that out. You you could see going overboard on Amazon Prime right now, but you really shouldn't. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you're curious about like where Adam Sandler started, I think. If you're a purist, I guess, I don't know. Go ahead. If, you, if you're curious about where Adam Sandler started or you've uh, gotten yourself stuck into doing a podcast <laughs> discussing his entire career alongside <laughs> Steven Spielberg, oh, then, then you should you know check what? it out. You know what? The, um, the best thing about going overboard is that, wow, you, you can come back. You can, you can open with something that terrible. Yeah. Unfortunately, and still have, like, a career out of it. Yep. That's kind of inspiring. It is, I guess, yeah. Yeah. Sorry to everyone else who did not have a career after that. Well, um, that was the first episode of this fucking thing. Yeah, the name of which is... Happy Ambling. Uh, So, Matt, where can the people find you? I'm at EmperorOTN1 at Twitter.com. I'm also on YouTube and Patreon. And you can find me at twitter.com at the Diego Crespo. Check out the Waffle Press on Twitter, YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes. 
many many more places. Or I guess at this point, iTunes might not be iTunes. It might be like Apple Podcasts or something. Yeah, whatever. Like that. Whatever. Same fuck. same difference. The, the link will still work down below. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We have been professionally unprofessional. Or just one more thing.